Well, I've been teaching the Bible for almost 40 years, and uh, there's only one person who has had to endure all 40 years, and that's my wife. Uh, she would be able to state probably better than anyone that there are many ways in which my understanding of the Bible and the things that I say about it have changed because they've grown and they've developed. But she would also say that most of those things were in place early on, and they've just kind of been growth from what I already knew and thought to, to a richer and fuller understanding of it. But there are a few, a handful of topics on which my mind has radically changed through the years. And one of those, not many people would recognize, but some of you might, one of those is on the subject of repentance. It's because of my, because of when I came to faith in Christ when I was 20, the way I understood that God can only save sinful people through Jesus Christ and what he did, and my firm conviction that it's only by faith that we come to possess Christ and to be connected to him and to have all of his benefits, because of that, it happened that in the early years of the church, I sort of um, didn't emphasize the Bible's teaching on repentance. Yet through the years, as I have thought more about this, as I've studied and taught the Bible more, I've come to see that it's more of uh, an important topic than I had previously emphasized. After all, this is where Jesus started his public ministry. If you open up the Gospels and you read about his early life and all of that, after his temptation, when it says he went out and he began to gather crowds and speak to them, that's called his public ministry. We're told in the Gospel of Mark that when he went out, his first words were this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Well, he said two things there, repent and believe the gospel. And Paul later at the end of his ministry describing what he had done as he went about through all of Turkey and other places starting churches, he said what he did is that he preached to everyone who'd listen and what he preached was repentance toward God and faith that is directed to towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things, repentance and faith. Now, I always knew that. But I understood early on that repentance was only a change of mind, not a change of direction. But what I began to see as I read the Bible and studied the Bible through the years, and what has slowly changed in my thinking and the way I articulate things, is the fact that the Bible, the word repentance in the Bible involves both a change of thinking and understanding about God and who he is, and a change in direction in which we go. And you can think of the verse that we started with this morning, that verse where Paul is describing what happened to the Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In conversion, there must be a definite turning. It is a turning to God, but it is also a turning from idols, that is, from sin and self and other objects of trust to God. So repentance and faith are like two sides of a coin. And saving faith includes Repentance, And this is true not only the day in which a person trusts in Christ for the first time, it's true as we go through the Christian life as well. Now what we have in this passage is a picture of repentance, at least the beginning of repentance. It's going to take two or three chapters for this to work its way out in the lives of these individuals. This chapter is very finely crafted. It's beautiful in its details. It is a chapter that sort of invites us to ponder and apply it and think about it. 
at the very heart of the chapter, there's these two interviews between Joseph and his ten brothers. Uh, And it's those that we want to focus on. Let me summarize how we got here. Jacob, the father who starts and ends the story, is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is the person who received distinct promises from God, the most important of which is through you and through your offspring, your descendants, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, from that point forward, God's intention is to bless the whole world and peoples all over the world through the descendants of Abraham. Those descendants became in the next generation only one person, Isaac, and in the next generation only one person, Jacob. But Jacob, we find, had 12 sons. They were born from two different wives who happened to be sisters. The first six were born to Leah, the, least, the less favored wife. And the last two of the children, Joseph and Benjamin, were born to Rachel, the beloved wife. There were also four sons who were born to each to the servant, maidservant of each of those women and were adopted both by those wives. So those 12 are the sons of Jacob. We've been following Joseph's fortunes because it happened as Joseph was growing up that his brothers hated him. And uh, he, he was sold by his brothers out in the wilderness into bondage to be a slave in Egypt. And they went home and told their father that Joseph was dead. And what we've looked at in the last few chapters is Joseph keeps getting into deeper and deeper trouble. But it seems that he always lands on his feet because of his faithful character. And finally, in the last chapter, he is able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. He's taken out of prison to do that. And when he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, he is elevated by Pharaoh to fulfill what the dreams were about. That is to save up all of the grain in Egypt from the seven years of plenty that are about to start. And to store it up in storehouses so that there will be plenty of food when the seven years of famine that Pharaoh dreamed about come to pass. And in the intervening time between his being sold as a slave and the point where we open this chapter, 20 years have passed. The Bible tells us he has grown from a skinny, pimply-faced, 17-year-old Hebrew boy out watching the sheep to the state manager, the secretary of the interior of Egypt. The one who's responsible for all of the land to fulfill what Pharaoh told him to do. The last chapter, I want you to note what Paul was in last week, ended with these kind of ominous words. When he was elevated and he was given this position, he was given a wife and he had two sons. What he said in verse 51 of chapter 42 is, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. He'd finally gotten over it. All of the mistreatment, his upbringing in obscurity, his brother's rejection of him, his slavery, and um, his imprisonment. And, and, and whoever reads that verse, God has made me forget, is like enticed to ponder what do those words mean if you stop and you let yourself rest upon them. Is Joseph saying at that point, I've given up on my past. I've given up on my ancestral religion. I've given up on the promises. I've given up on my youthful dreams that I'll be greater than my brother and my parents. I no longer have concern about all of those things I was concerned in the past. Has he now settled down for a comfortable life in Egypt to connect his destiny with that of the Egyptian nation? Well, it does appear that way, at least in those words. 
We don't really know what he was thinking, but what we do know is that God has not forgotten him. And in the next chapter, the chapter I just read, God brings him face to face with all of the things that he forgot. Now he's going to remind him again of all of his hardships, of his rejection by his brother, of his father, of his brothers, of his dreams. So on one level, what this story is about is about the reconciliation of a family who had been fractured by the fault lines of sin and hatred between the brothers. They had made their way deeply into the family so that it's evidence, and even in the words that the father speaks, that he's suspicious of the ten sons and of what really happened to Joseph. There's a growing chasm between the brothers themselves over what went on, and especially between them and the last remaining, the youngest of them all, the full brother of Joseph, Benjamin. Now, families sometimes experience fractures. I know my own did as my children were growing up, one so deep that it took years for there to be reconciliation between the various members so that we could again go on vacation and enjoy each other's presence. Many families experience that, but you need to know this passage is about much more than that. It is about the reconciliation of a family, but these people are the key players in the grand story of redemption. They are the ones who have been given promises. And their story tells us about God's promise to bless the world through them and their descendants, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. This story is about how that promise was endangered when the members of the family, because of their sin, begin to split up and move their separate ways. And if they just moved off and assimilated into the cultures around them, the promise would not be fulfilled. It tells us how at those points when that happened, not only here, but later in history as well, God intervened. In this case, he sovereignly brings about an unlikely series of events to bring these brothers back into each other's presence and shows us what happens as a result of that. Their reconciliation to each other is nothing less than their conversion to God. And that's what we want to think about this morning. This passage pictures their repentance Now, the fullness of their repentance and their faith that is shown in conversion, it really requires the next two or three chapters as well. And we'll get there eventually, but I just want to say this gives us a very clear picture of repentance. This is not simply about the restoration of a family. It's about the preservation of the promise so that you and I could sit here today and worship God through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Now, because of the famine in Egypt, a famine in Egypt, the ten brothers go down to Egypt to buy grain. The famine apparently was not only in Egypt, but it spread up north and east, at least, into what is called today Palestine and what is in the Bible here called Canaan. Because of the famine, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And uh, remember, Pharaoh appointed Joseph as the state manager to gather in the crops, and that is what he has done. Now, we're not told how it happened that as these brothers made their way down from Canaan in a, in a regular caravan that would have taken them to, to Egypt, we aren't told how, to quote a movie of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, they happened to walk into the one where Joseph is. Obviously, he wasn't present at all the storehouses. He was the manager over all of this that was going on in the entire country. But they walk in to the storehouse where he, at least that day, happens to be. He immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. This is natural. 20 years have passed. And if you don't think people change much in 20 years, go to your 20-year high school reunion, and it will convince you of that. 
In fact, at this point of the story, we would gather that much had changed for Joseph. His appearance, he'd grown from youth into mature adulthood as a 37, 38-year-old. And um, he, he spoke a different language. He now spoke Egyptian. He dressed as an Egyptian. His hair was cut as an Egyptian. He looked completely differently like an Egyptian nobleman. And after all, they thought he was dead anyways. They weren't expecting Joseph to be around. And I want to draw your attention when they come to him the first time to what it says, verse 8, and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him, verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now, that's a very important statement. I missed it. I was reading a commentary, and I realized how important it was. You see, in the first five books of the Bible, the books written by Moses, they generally, uh, Moses, the narrator telling the story, he usually doesn't insert information about what is going inside of the characters. You know, in literature, there's a difference between what's called the omniscient and omniscient narrator and a limited narrator. An omniscient narrator is telling a story, and he's telling you what people are thinking inside and what they're feeling, things that you wouldn't know otherwise. It's much harder to write a story, and most novels are written this way, by a limited narrator. That is, he's describing the scene. He's describing how people look, how they respond to different things, and he's inviting the reader then to understand what must be going on inside. That's more how Moses wrote. There are very few places in the first five books where he kind of rips back the curtain and tells you what's going on, but this is one Joseph remembered. You would have no way of knowing this what was going on inside Joseph's mind. What is it he remembered? He remembered quite explicitly what he said he forgot in the previous chapter. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Joseph remembered his brothers, his father, his dreams of greatness to be the one who would carry on the promise in a unique way. It all comes flooding back, especially in the fact that when they come into his presence, they bow down to him, just as his dreams had foretold that his brothers would bow down to him. Now, in the first interview here where Joseph remembers all of these things, all of this that he's tried to forget as he's moved on in life comes flooding back into his mind. In this first interview, he treats them harshly. He does this undoubtedly in order to determine their character. Are they still the wretched guys that I knew who threw me into a pit? He wants to find out about his father and his brother. He wants to prick their guilty consciences as well and see what comes out. So he tells them, first, I'm going to put nine of you in prison and send one of you back to get your brother Benjamin. He wants to prove that Benjamin is still there. He must have thought, they sold me into slavery. What might they have done to Benjamin? So in their second interview... After he puts them in jail for three days, he brings them out, and now things have changed. His tone is a little bit softer, and he's obviously had a chance to think about it. If he sends nine of them to jail and sends only one of them back, number one, his father will be very reluctant to allow anyone to bring Benjamin back. He's lost nine of his sons, so what's going to happen? But number two, if he does that, one person can carry only a small amount of grain back to Canaan where there is not only his father and brother, but all his brother's wives and children present who need to live and make their way back. So he changes the requirement. He says, what I'm going to have you do is leave one of your brothers, presuming presumably he allows them to choose. 
You can leave one of your brothers. The rest of you can take grain back. And uh, in order to get your brother, you need to bring the youngest one that you spoke of, Benjamin, and bring him back. And they agreed to do that. Now, what happens is they begin to talk to one another. Undoubtedly, they're talking in the Hebrew language. Um, They're assuming that an Egyptian noble would not know an obscure language like Hebrew. He's not going to understand them at all. And uh, we read in verse 21, and these are the important words I want to focus your attention on for a few minutes. Then they said to one another, in language they thought Joseph couldn't hear, couldn't understand. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now, what they say gives us insight into what's going on inside of them. And their response indicates that in this situation in which they find themselves, all kinds of feelings and emotions have been awakened. Their consciences, in fact, have been uh, pricked. And they get a clear picture of what I want you to see are the three elements of repentance. There are three elements of repentance. You might think of it like you plant a seed in the ground. If that seed germinates, the first thing that happens is it begins to poke its head, a little plant, above the earth and moves the earth aside. And when you see that, you know that life has begun to form. That's the initial form of repentance. It lets you know that life has started. Then we see repentance in a second way. That is, as it begins to grow and develop, like when that begins to shoot up and a stalk appears and leaves start to grow out of it. And then we see uh, at least the beginning of the mature form of repentance. The fruit isn't going to happen for a couple of chapters, but it's like the fruit of the flower begins to come out and the fruit starts to swell out from the branch That's the more mature form of repentance. Those are what happens in their response that God has kind of like a crucible put them into and begun to put the pressure on. First, the germination. Repentance begins with the awakening of the conscience. Repentance begins with the awakening of the conscience. When the seedling breaks through the soil, it's shown in the awakening of a sense that I have done something wrong. I have done something wrong. We see this in the first words that they speak. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Now, why is it? They don't know who this is that they're talking to. They've come down to get grain. But all of a sudden, the first thing that comes to mind for them, and they start talking to each other about it, is in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. Well, think of the scene they are in right there. They are in a scene which, um, partly by Joseph's doing and largely by God's doing, is sort of a recreation of their original sin. They sold their brother into slavery, and then the nine of them returned back to their father and had to explain to him why they weren't bringing that one home. They are now in a situation where they're not being asked to sell their brother, but they have to choose which one we're going to leave behind here in custody. And nine of us have to return back to our father and do the same thing we did 20 years ago, explain to him why we're not coming home with our brother. And in the midst of that, they feel this guilt. God brings them to a place where they feel their guilt on one level, Conscience is like an inner voice or a feeling that acts as a guide to the rightness or the wrongness of our actions. Now, where do those standards come from inside? Well, they come from many sources. They come from culture. 
from our upbringing and the family we were brought up in, from our experiences in life. But there is, inside of us, the Bible would indicate like a template on which the experiences of life and our culture and all of those things get written. And that template is given to us by God. Conscience is something that, at least in a very basic form, is implanted inside of every human being born into the world. That's why there's such remarkable agreement all over the world about what the Bible would call the second table of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 through 10. Those six commandments are found in some form in every culture everywhere. Do not commit adultery, do not, adultery, do not uh, murder, do not steal, and so forth. All of those things are built in. Oh, there are minor differences in how people understand them, but everyone acknowledges those things to be sin. Why is it? Well, it's because God's standard of life and, wrong, and, and what is right and wrong is written on the human heart. The essence of what the Ten Commandments are is called the moral law that Paul says in the book of Romans is written on every human heart from birth. All ethical questions go back to the Ten Commandments in some form. And, and, and they have a conscience, and their conscience is awakened, and they say, I did something wrong. Now, I remember when my wife, my wife uh, first began to talk to me uh, when we were dating in college before we were married. She began to talk to me about Christ. And uh, we sat down, and she was showing me this booklet, and she got to a point that said something like, you, you are sinful, or you are a sinner, or something like that. And I remember I stopped her, and I said, you can stop right there. I'm not a sinner. And I, I think now when I look, you know, I look back on that, how ludicrous that I would say that, but you need to understand it. What I meant is, from my background, my sense of right and wrong, people who had the title sinners, for who, who really needed forgiveness, were people who had done something really bad. They must have violated one of the chief commands of the Bible, murder, uh, gross immorality, violence, and, and things like that. And since I had never done anything like that, I had never done anything for which I could go to prison, I, I figured I don't really need forgiveness. That's what those kinds of words are, are for. You are a sinner. Now, I didn't mean I never did anything wrong. I knew that I did things wrong. What I meant was I never did anything significantly wrong, at least not in my own eyes. I never did anything that really harmed another person. And I remember as a freshman in college that over the next few months, what God did was he graciously kind of slowly peeled back the, the skin of the onion to let me see that in my heart, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I mean, if I measured myself against others and I chose not to think about it too deeply, I came off looking pretty good. You know, but... When I began to read more about God and I went to Bible studies and was thinking about this, I realized that measured against God and his standards for life, I regularly violated them. My cursing, my ridiculing people I didn't like, my looking down on people I thought I was better than, my lustful thoughts, all these things offended God. I was a sinner. See, it all depends on how you define sin. If sin is just a few external things that are so big that the vast majority of us would never fall into that category, then you don't really need a savior. But if sin is a lack of conformity to the character of God and the way God made us to be, then I was in trouble. That's the awakening of conscience. That's the first thing they experience. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. 
Then secondly, you see that there's a growth in that. It grows in the specific acknowledgement of sin. Uh, Repentance grows with the acknowledgement of sin. So look at verse 21 again. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that, here's specifically how we're guilty. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Now, there's two things going on here. It's not just a general, we did something wrong concerning our brother. It's the specifics of what they did wrong. And there's two things that happen in those brief words that I read. In that, we didn't listen. The the, the first is the exercise of memory. They are now remembering specifically their behavior that was wrong. And they're remembering something that you wouldn't know up to this point. You could guess it, but it's not described in chapter 37 when they sell him into slavery. What is not described in chapter 37 is how Joseph responded when they threw him in a pit that he couldn't climb his way out of. And and they apparently sat down there and ate their lunch and talked with each other, trying to figure out, should we just leave him there to die? Should we kill him ourselves until they decide, no, let's sell him to slave traders and he'll die anyways, but at least we won't have done it personally. Now, Joseph didn't know that. He's down in the pit, 17 years old, and he knows that his brothers hate him. This isn't a joke. You know, he's not saying, hey, guys, you know, the joke's over. Pull me out now. You know, he's screaming and crying at the top of his lungs, begging them to pull him out and not leaving him there. He's sure that he's either going to starve to death or die of thirst or by eaten, be eaten by a wild animal there in the wilderness. And that's what they remember. They remember his screams and cries that had haunted their dreams for 20 years. When they woke up in the middle of the night and they looked back over their lives, that's what they thought about. Joseph screams in the pit. Now, repentance does not always require open confession, but that's what they add to their memory. Now they put together a memory about something they did wrong with an open confession about it. Depending on the nature of a person's sin or actions, they don't have to uh, confess everything in great detail to another person, but they do it naturally here because it was a joint sin. And they start to say to each other, surely we're guilty for this. And um, it's a further indication that their feeling of guilt is, is accompanied by the specifics of exactly what they did. Repentance involves an internal sense of guilt, a feeling of shame, a revulsion about oneself, a responsibility that I've done something so heinous that God that, that is hated so much. Um, repentance involves a hatred of sin, a realization that it has brought drastic consequences into a person's life. And then there's one final step that they take. Would it be possible for a person to take the first two steps without any sense of God, but the last thing tells us that they bring another actor into the picture here. They say that is why this distress has come upon us. Now, what they're saying, in other words, is they're not thinking, I I violated my own standards and I feel bad about it. They're saying, I violated a standard outside of myself, and there's a law outside of myself that brings back on me the consequences of what I've done. In other words, there's a divine ruler of life. Now, their words don't really say that. They could, though they wouldn't have, they could have said, well, that's karma. You know, do bad things, bad things happen back. Like it's some kind of impersonal rule of the universe. That's not what they say, and we know it because read the next sentence. Reuben answered them, the oldest, 
Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Which he did in chapter 37. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. That reckoning is very important. Reckoning means they're not attributing their, their conduct to bad luck, to karma, to some impersonal law of the universe. It's God alone. Reckoning is a judicial word. There's something that is a sentence, a personal consequence that falls on them personally because of their very personal sin. Now, and I want you to note, there's these three steps. I am guilty. I am guilty for these specific reasons. Number two, this is what I remember. These thoughts, these words, this behavior. And then thirdly, and the most important, I'm accountable to God. I'm accountable to God. My guilt is not merely horizontal. I didn't only sin against my brother. I sinned against God himself. Now, that's what repentance involves, those three things. And I want you to think about conscience in light of that. Let's think about conscience because people struggle with this. Conscience is a very fragile thing. It's a difficult thing to talk about. People's consciences are not all the same. Some people feel guilty about things other people don't feel guilty about. Even though we're told there's a template inside, life and training and all kinds of things writes on that template the things that we feel guilty about in life. Some people, if you think about it, people tend to divide into two categories on this. Some people, it seems, have an overly sensitive conscience. They're very aware of standards, and they're constantly fearing that they violated them, whether it's their own standards or someone else's standards. I happen to be more on this side, overly sensitive to sin. And I know that there's a way that people who are overly sensitive a way in which they tend to take responsibility. They take responsibility for anything that goes wrong, for all kinds of things that happen, even things outside their control. They figure, well, I must be at fault somewhere, somehow in this whole thing. And unless an overly sensitive person becomes aware of the gospel, they get caught up in a uh, kind of an unending treadmill of feelings about themselves. Here's what an overly sensitive person does when he sins and feels that he's done something wrong and acknowledges what it is, steps one and two. Here's what he does. He begins to do something to try to prove that he really is sorry. The man who struggles with pornography afterwards hates himself and determines he's never going to sin again in that specific way. And so what he does is for the next two weeks, he stays away from those websites. He's really good until after a week, 10 days, he starts to feel like, I really am sincere, aren't I? I really mean this. And he figures that if he's pleased with his sincerity, whether he thinks about it or not, he figures God must be pleased too. Uh, the, The young woman who goes to a bar and picks up a man and takes her home on a Saturday night, wakes up the next day feeling terrible about it, says, I'm never going to do that again. And for the next two Saturday nights, instead of going to the bar, she goes to the Bible study. And finally, after a couple of weeks of that, of really trying to think right and live right and be right, she feels on the third Sunday like maybe she can go to church again and God will listen to her. Now, what I want you to note about What a person does who is overly sensitive is that everything they do left to themselves, if they don't understand the gospel, 
Everything they do is an attempt at self-justification. It's an attempt at saying, look how sincere I am. I really am sincere. You are sincere, aren't you? That feels pretty good. They don't need God as long as they're sincere. It's just self-justification. I really mean it. I'm really sorry. God can accept me now. On the other hand, you have people that are the exact opposite. They are overly insensitive to conscience. They, on their side, tend to do this with things wrong. If they feel a twinge of conscience, they tend to deny that there even is a standard. And this side is rampant in our culture today. We're being taught in so many ways in movies from Hollywood and books and all the things that, that really everything that we thought was sin, that's not sin, it's just personal choice. That's all it is. It doesn't matter what it is, it's just personal choice. And so what a person does on that side is they deny responsibility. They deny that there even is a standard, and so they deny as a result that any payment would need to be made for the standard. And if there is a God, they figure... He wouldn't need to have some payment from me or anyone else in order to accept me. And that also is an attempt at self-justification because, after all, if you don't need to be justified, to be accepted by God, you must be acceptable already. In either case, a person who simply recognizes sin and can even name it can consider that they don't really need anything to be done with it beyond either denying it or beating themselves up for it. But true repentance can never be separated from faith. Remember remember where we started? How you turn to God from idols. There was both a turning from and a turning to. And the gospel is designed to to deal with this fact that people tend to err on one side or the other, and on either side, either accepting responsibility way beyond where they should, or or denying responsibility. In either case, they avoid God. They avoid the gospel. The gospel's found in the third place where they said, you know, now we're receiving a just recompense. Where Reuben says to them, now there's a retribution. What was the word he used? A reckoning for what you have done, a judicial sentence. You see, what the gospel says is the gospel says, you are far worse than you could have imagined. Your state is far worse than you ever could have imagined. Your sin, whatever it is, is an affront to a God of infinite holiness, such an affront that you cannot fathom the response of a God of holiness to your behavior, your character, whatever that is that you can name. Eternal damnation would be too small in that situation. On one hand, that is true. On the other hand, what the gospel says is not only are you more guilty than you can imagine, but it says as well, you are also more loved than you could ever imagine. Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, took your place on the cross and took your sin upon himself. Well, I am getting ahead of myself because the reconciliation doesn't happen in this chapter. I'm only looking at repentance at this point. But I want you to note, we're given a rather full picture of repentance. The repentance includes not simply a twinge of conscience, a sense I've done something wrong, and number two, not simply an ability to name what it is that you've done wrong. Those two things are essential, but that by itself many people could go through and never understand it has anything to do with God. It's the step that's made beyond that, that my whole life has lived before God who made me for himself. That God 
is so concerned for human life that he even is concerned for my sin. And that's why he sent his son. Now, the brothers have some way to go before they experience reconciliation. But we're given a picture of repentance here. And it's one that reminds us, if there's no sin, then you do not need a savior. If sin does not mean the wrath of God, then you do not need the God-man to die on the cross and take that wrath on himself. Repentance is acknowledging and hating sin. It isn't beating yourself up about it. It isn't feeling bad long enough so you can feel like, well, I guess I'm really sincere. It's recognizing that left to ourselves, we are incapable of paying anything and that a God of holiness is a God who cares about our lives. Repentance is like the black background a jeweler sets down in order to put a jewel on it and allow the jewel to shine in all of its brilliance. In the same way, the death of Jesus and the meaning of the death of Jesus and why it is so important only shines in all its brilliance when it's put against a background of repentance, of seeing the nature of God's feeling about my sin. It's what you need to hear every day of your lives. It's not just what it means to enter into the Christian life, to turn to God from idols, but it's as you go through life to turn to God from idols every day, to respond and continuously respond to Jesus' first words of ministry, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Again, our gracious fathers, we come before you we know that this is the kind of thing that only your spirit can make effectively true in our hearts and lives because of our native darkness. As we go through this world, we'll make our way falling on one side or the other of repentance and avoiding the reality that our lives are open to God. And the scrutiny of your eyes sees everything but that in your great love, you gave for us a way of salvation, a forgiveness that is free and has been paid for by another who took your wrath in our place. We pray that you would drive this home to us and allow our lives, our church, our families to be gospel-centered as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.